Hello, and welcome to the Kiskea Chapel Sermon Podcast. Kiskea Chapel is an international church in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, where we equip English-speaking believers to expand God's kingdom in our community and beyond. For more information about Kiskea Chapel, you can visit us on our website at kiskeachapel.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Do you know this word, eulogy? Uh, I've been told that in, in Creole, it would be testament. Testament? Uh, I think this is the word in Creole. At a funeral, when people get up and they talk about the person who's died and they try and summarize their life, uh, in America, we would call that a eulogy. Eulogy, which means just to honor the person who's died. And I've done a lot of funerals over the years. I think I'm probably going to do many more. <laughs> Maybe I'm old enough that many funerals are in my future, but uh, there are two ways I have found that you can do this. Two ways you can do a funeral. Uh, jump to that, yeah. Basically, you could do it sequential, which just means in a row. So you could start out, and many people do this at a funeral. They get up and they say, well, this person went to grade school here, and then they went to high school. They were born in this year. Then they got married and they had kids. And they just kind of tell the story as a sequence of events. But other people will get up and do a eulogy for somebody who's died, and they'll say, uh, I want to tell you about this person because they were an amazing person of happiness. They were always happy. And then they'll tell a few stories about that. Or they may say, this person was a person of integrity. They never cheated. They always told the truth. And they'd tell a few stories about that. Well, as we look at this section in the Gospel of Mark, and I think as Luke already said, if you're new here, we're studying, I said Gospel of Mark, right? We're studying through the Gospel of Mark, and we have a little journal that kind of helps you do that on a daily basis, because our number one priority as a church is that you learn how to feed yourself, not just show up once a week and I throw some seed at you. You learn to feed yourself. You read and study the Bible for yourself. And so we'd really encourage you uh, to participate. I will be preaching or whoever's up here teaching will teach about the passages you've read during this week. And that's what I'll do this morning. I'll teach part of what we talked about this morning. So we are in this middle section of Mark's gospel. And this idea of how do you eulogize Someone who's dead, even though they believed he was alive again, is similar here. Some gospels uh, we call synoptic gospels. Have you ever heard this term, synoptic? It mainly means Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they give a synopsis, a summary of Jesus' life, his teachings, his death, and his resurrection. Okay? And of those gospels, if you can jump to the next slide there. I think, oh, nope, go back, (laughs) not yet. Uh, Of those gospels, Mark is more than likely the first gospel. Most scholars agree that the gospel of Mark, it's the shortest, it's the simplest, and so probably it was written first. Probably not very long after Jesus' resurrection, the gospel of Mark was written. In fact, the earth. Early church tells us that they often referred to the first writing about Jesus, and they say that was a young disciple named John Mark. And John Mark probably got most of these stories about Jesus 
from the Apostle Peter. Uh, again, we have quite a few incidences in the early church of early church uh, bishops telling us that the Gospel of Mark came from Peter's first-hand experience with Jesus. He, he's saying, this is what happened, I was there. And so Mark's a very direct and immediate story telling us as much as it can about Jesus. Uh, again, Matthew was also, we believe, a disciple, so he was giving his firsthand experience. And Luke, we know for sure, because he tells us this, he got most of his stories from the Apostle Paul. He would travel with Paul and he would interview people who had been there when Jesus did these miracles or these teachings, and that's what we have in Luke's gospel. So they're all a little bit different, but I want to talk about Mark this morning because that's what we're studying. Remember I said there's two ways to do a eulogy. One is sequential, here's the order of events, and the other is topical. As you're reading the gospel of Mark, the first half of it appears to be topical. Here's some things about Jesus. Now, let me tell you some stories that demonstrate those things. Just like you'd do at a funeral. You'd tell somebody, here's, I love this about this person, and here's some stories that illustrate it. The second half of Mark's gospel, it turns sequential, and he starts telling this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and this happened. That's why if you're studying your Bible, you will find a different order of events in Mark's gospel than you will in Matthew or Luke. It's not because they're lying, it's because Mark's saying, I'm going to tell you some things Jesus taught, and then I'm going to tell you some stories about Jesus that illustrate the things he taught. So Mark actually uses both approaches. He gives a testament as uh, here's who Jesus was and some stories that demonstrate that, and then as it gets closer to Jesus' arrest and his death his crucifixion and his resurrection, he starts telling sequentially, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Okay, so this section that you're in, in your readings, is a section where he'll tell a story that Jesus told, and then he'll use a bunch of other stories to illustrate that story, okay? So now jump to the next slide. The, the central story here, we talked about a few weeks ago. It's in Mark chapter 4. Jesus tells a story, uh, a parable about a sower who went out to sow some seed. And what we learned in that story, I'm not going to go through all of it again, but we learned that the power is actually not in the sower. It doesn't matter whether he throws it backhand. It doesn't matter how he throws it because the power isn't in the sower. It's not in you and me. The power is in the seed. And if the seed finds good soil, what Jesus is teaching is it always works. We don't know how it works. He tells, remember the story, the seed even grows at night. We don't know what's going on. It grows mysteriously. Okay, so he tells this story and in it he said, so the real issue is you, the hearer. And he says there's four kinds of hearers. He talks about hard soil, the seed can't find its way in because the heart of the person is hard. And then he talks about rocky soil, it's too shallow, has no roots. And then he talks about thorny soil, where actually the seed takes and it springs up, but then it gets choked to death by life's worries and cares. And then the last one, he says the good seed 
it finds a good soil in the human heart and it produces 30, 50, sometimes 100 times more than was planted. Amazing, amazing miracle. We forget it. But it's a miracle that we can take one seed and it can produce a massive apple tree that produces hundreds and hundreds of apples, each containing hundreds of seeds sometimes. Okay, so here's the picture Jesus is painting. There are two kinds of extremes, the hard soil of unbelief and the good soil of faith. And in between you have soil where it takes, but it doesn't do very well because there's doubt. Okay, so that's what's going on in this section of Mark. Mark is telling stories, some about unbelief, some about doubt, and some about faith. So as you're reading the Gospel of Mark and you look through those things, I want you to start noticing all these stories kind of fit in one of those three categories. Uh, jump to the next slide, please. Let me give you just some examples. One example, because if you've been reading, you know this. One of the stories about unbelief he gives, you remember he tells about the Pharisees hearing Jesus? And the Pharisees are so hard-hearted, they have so much unbelief, they literally say Jesus is doing this by the power of Satan. And Jesus, remember, he calls this the unforgivable sin to see something God has done and pretend you don't see it. Okay, then there's a second set of stories about doubt. Remember I, last week or a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the storm at sea where the disciples, even though they believed in Jesus, they were like the thorny soil or the rocky soil. They struggled with doubt. They believed in Jesus, not like the Pharisees, it wasn't unbelief, it was just doubt. And you and I, we go through this, don't we? We believe in Jesus, but we struggle every day with doubt. And then the third section of stories are the ones you read this week. He talks about what faith looks like, and he tells two particular stories you would have read this week. One is about uh, a man who was the head of a synagogue named Jairus. And he comes to Jesus and he says, would you please come heal my daughter? She's sick, she might die. I know if you say the word, Jesus, she'll be okay. And Jesus is like, okay, that's faith. That's faith. Then he tells in the middle of that another story of a woman who's had a hemorrhage of blood. She's been bleeding for over 12 years. She spent all of her money on doctors, nothing's happened. And she in the crowd sneaks up and touches the robe of Jesus because she thinks, if I can just touch his robe, maybe I'll be healed. And Jesus says, whoa, who touched me? The disciples are like, everybody? <laughs> what do you mean? He goes, no, 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 who touched me in faith? And it's that one woman. And what's he say to her? Go, daughter, your faith has made you well. Okay, so all these stories, all these stories, they're about this question of how God responds to unbelief and how God responds to faith. Okay, now that was a long introduction, but let me read the passage I want to talk about this morning. Mark chapter 6, the first six verses, and I believe, yeah, we have them up there. 
Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. We've heard that a lot, haven't we? Jesus teaches they're amazed. They ask, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed or laughed at him. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. His sisters live right here among us. And they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Folks, if you're struggling with doubt this morning, I want you to know that's not the same as unbelief. They're very different. Unbelief is right here. I refuse to believe in Jesus or what he says. Doubt is where you go, can I believe it? But please, Jesus, help me with my doubt because I'm really struggling here. I want to believe, but I just kind of like the seed that grows in rocky soil. Sometimes I just shrivel up in the noonday sun. Now, the amazing thing about this, this is a story about Jesus going back to his hometown in Nazareth. Okay, how many of you grew up outside of Port-au-Prince, somewhere else in Haiti? Put your hand up if you grew up somewhere else. Okay, uh, did some of you grow up in small towns in the country? If you go back, sometimes you know what's going on here. You go back and they remember you as a little kid. Now you're a grown-up adult, hopefully. <laughs> and they're like, who is this? I have a friend who went back to his small town in America where he grew up. He loved it. He had so many, he tells all these stories about this amazing small town he grew up in and how all the people cared for each other and shared and helped each other when they were sick and all these things. So he was so excited that years, years later, he got to go back to his hometown. He went back because he loved the house he grew up in. He, he took some friends with him, and they went back to see it, and he was going to show them his house, and guess what was there? They'd torn the house down. There was a gas station there. He was devastated. He's like, what? They tore my house down, my childhood house down? Same thing's going on right here in Mark chapter 6. Jesus goes back to his hometown, and they go, who does he think he is? We know him, little, little kid Jesus. We know him. He's got brothers and sisters that still live here. It's interesting, you know, we actually know a little bit about his brothers and sisters. Uh, one that's mentioned in this passage, it says the brother of James. We know about that James. He became a leader. He eventually believed in his little brother Jesus. And the early church tells us that no one called him James anymore. He was known as Camel Knees because he spent almost all of his time praying on his knees. And so they mention him, they just talk about it like anyone would have a nickname. Oh, Camel Knees, Jesus' brother, Camel Knees. So here Jesus goes back, his brothers, his sister. 
the people in the community, Nazareth would have been probably right around 200 people in Jesus' day. And he goes back to his hometown and they're like, who is this? That's not the little Jesus we knew. And look what it says there. They refused to believe in him. In fact, they were offended by him. Oh, you're not the Jesus we know. Uh, who, who do you think you are? And so they lob two insults at him, two insults at him. The first one is, look at verse 3 there, they scoffed, he's just a carpenter. Now actually the word in the original language, technon, does not actually even mean full carpenter. It's, in America we would call it a handyman. He helps carpenters out. <laughs> he knows how to hammer a nail. They're not saying like, oh, he's the head carpenter. They're going, no, he's a handyman. And they meant that as an insult to Jesus. Who, who is this guy? Isn't that little Jesus who became a handyman? And then the second insult they level at him uh, is even uglier. It's the ugliest kind of rumor that starts in a small town. Those of you who've grown up in a small town, you know once a rumor starts, everybody kind of has you tagged. Here's what they say. Look at verse 3. Isn't he the son of Mary? Now, that doesn't sound bad, does it? Until you know that Hebrews would never refer to someone as the son of a woman. In fact, we see it many times. They'll say, oh, that's Bar Simon, the son of Simon. Here they say, oh, bar Mary, and everyone's like, what? Do you know what that means? Uh, we have a word that's sometimes even seen as a curse word in, in English. It's not a good word. It's a horrible thing to say. We would say that person's a bastard. That's what they're saying about Jesus here. Oh, you mean the bastard handyman? No, we're offended that he's going to come back and start telling us how to live our lives. He doesn't even have a father around. He's the bastard handyman. He's an illegitimate child. So Jesus is going back to Nazareth. He's been doing amazing miracles, and he decides, I'm going to go back to my hometown, Nazareth. And when he gets there, they go, uh-uh, no. That's not the Jesus we know. You're not him. Do you get the implication? They're saying, you were from a really messed up family. If anybody was going to make it, maybe James, the older brother, he might have made something of himself, but not Jesus. We're offended by that. He's just a bastard handyman. Again, notice here, that scale we looked at, faith, unbelief, and then most of us live in doubt. This is not doubt. It says in the text, it's straight unbelief. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in Him. They made a choice. We're not going to listen to what Jesus has to say. We're not going to ask Jesus to heal the sickness of our children. Isn't that disturbing? All right, well, let's look at verse 4 through 6. Just keep that up there. Jesus told them, He said, a prophet 
He's never accepted in his hometown. <laughs> in other words, he knew it. He knew that they were going to reject him. And in verse 5 it says, because of their what? Unbelief, not doubt. Unbelief. He couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. I love that. It's like Jesus is like, okay, no, none of you are bringing your sick children to me. I can heal them. So he kind of goes like, okay, well, I'm going to sneak around and heal a few people anyways. <laughs> so I know you're offended by that, but I actually have the power to heal. So he couldn't do any miracles among them except he placed his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Look at verse 6. This is so important. Remember how many times in Mark's gospel it is said that other people were amazed by Jesus? He'd do a miracle and they'd go, oh, we're amazed, amazed. Mark loves the word amazed, by the way. But he only uses it one time about Jesus here in verse 6. Everybody else was amazed, now it's Jesus' turn to be amazed. When he saw the unbelief of those people, it says he was amazed at their unbelief. Amazed at their unbelief. I, I, I don't know, in Haiti, do you know Superman, the cartoon character, Superman? Well, you know, we talk about Superman has one weakness, and what is it? Kryptonite. This magical mineral that can sap Superman, even Superman of his strength. So is that what's going on here? Is unbelief Jesus' kryptonite? <laughs> In fact, it's very important here. I'm going to build a case. I know the translators have translated this, he could not do any miracles. But we have the same story told in Matthew, and Matthew says it, I think, much clearer. He says, he did not do any miracles. Okay? Jump to the next slide. Could not or would not? In other words, here's the question we're asking this morning. Is Jesus limited by unbelief? I thought he was what we call omnipotent. He has all power. He can do anything he wants, whenever he wants. Or is unbelief is kryptonite? Take a look at a few of these examples. I believe the scriptures are very clear. God can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants. He is all-powerful, omnipotent. Look at Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does as He wishes. It's not dependent upon us. Daniel 4, 35, he does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. Isaiah 46, only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. This is very important, very important you understand this. God's power is not limited by our unbelief. But here's the principle I want you to learn. If you don't learn anything else this morning, I want you to look at this principle. Jump to the next slide. God is morally compelled to bypass unbelief. God will not show His power 
when unbelief is present. He won't do it. He has made a choice. He can do whatever he wants, but he has made a choice. He will not show up in the midst of unbelief. By the way, we're going to talk about this more in a second. This is one of the questions that we ask. Why are we seeing the greatest revival in church history right now on planet Earth, in China and Africa? Why not North America? Why not Europe? Why not Haiti? I think it has something to do with this principle. God will not pour His power out in environments of unbelief. I don't know enough about Haiti, but I can tell you that's what's going on in America. <laughs> it's not that God can't bring revival to America. He will not do it because it's an environment of unbelief. And so we sit in America, we sit here in the West and we go, God, where are you? You want to know? Go to China. You won't even believe what God is doing in China, in Africa, parts of, of Latin America, South America. Again, the current revival in China is greater than the first 300 years of the church, and, and not close, significantly greater than what happened in the first 300 years of the church. Why? Is it random? God just goes, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, oh yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll show my power for these guys. Or does it have something to do with this principle? God is morally compelled to bypass unbelief. He simply will not unleash His power in an environment of unbelief. Now this is very hard for us to hear. Because Haiti, much like America, we put Jesus sticker on everything. We paint it on our tap taps. We talk about everybody's talks about being a Christian. That's not the issue. I don't know. God's the judge. He will judge whether people are Christians or not. Not me, thank goodness. But he will not pour his power out in an environment of unbelief. He will not do it. I want you to take a look at another story we looked at this week, if you've been doing the reading. Look at Mark chapter 5 here. This is the story. Remember, Jesus is the, this man Jairus, the synagogue leader, says, my daughter's dying. Please come quickly, Jesus. I know you can heal her. And then he gets caught up with the woman who's bleeding. And so by the time he shows up, they tell Jesus, no, nah, she's already dead. You're too late. And so. They literally laughed at Jesus. You want to talk about an environment of unbelief? They're like, oh, no, 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 you showed up too late. She's dead. You can go ahead and go, Jesus. Look what it says Jesus does. All right, everybody out of here. Everybody. Except Peter, James, John, and the Father. Why? They have faith. They're like, Jesus, say the word, and my daughter will be healed. The other people are laughing at him, and Jesus says, let's get them out of here. God will not operate in an environment of unbelief, so let's get the unbelievers out of here. I don't care how much they say they believe in God. I'm saying 
I don't want to be dealing with this little girl with a whole bunch of people who don't believe present. Unbelief kills Jesus' ability to do miracles, not because he can't, but because he won't. So he kicks them all out. And then what's he say to the little girl? Little girl, rise up from your sleep. <laughs> and she rises from the dead. Jesus has the power to resurrect the dead, but he's not going to pour it out in environments of unbelief. He will not do it. I know that a lot of Christians try and say, well, I don't know why God won't do this. Remember the parable of the sower? Seed works just fine. The issue is the condition of the human heart. How's the soil? And if that is a soil of unbelief, that seed will bounce right off it. He only shows up when faith is present. And Mark goes out of his way to tell all kinds of stories about people who had faith. And Jesus says, woman, your faith has healed you. Now, was it really your faith? No, it's just he's saying to her, the fact that you had faith allowed me to unleash the power of God in your situation. If you didn't demonstrate that faith, guess what happens? Not much, even though it does, I love it that it says he still went around, snuck around and healed a few sick people, because <laughs> that's God's heart. That's what he wants to do. But he won't do it when expectations are low. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Another way to put the principle is the author of Hebrews says, it is impossible to please God without faith. Now, I know many of us read that and we go, mm-hmm, of course. I want you to read that more carefully. If you're asking God to operate in your life, your family's life, your church, your country, but you're not willing to express faith, do not have expectations that God will rise up. He will not pour out His power in an environment of unbelief. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've had people who don't believe in Jesus say, well, if God will heal my child of cancer, then I'll believe. And you know what the right response to them is? No, 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 you got it backwards. You have to believe first. God's not going to do tricks for you to help you believe. Belief is a prerequisite, not a postrequisite. So I know this happens for many of us. We say, oh God, if you'll just do this for me, then I'll really believe. No. God will not pour out His power on unbelief. Belief is what comes first. Faith must come first, because without faith it's impossible to please God. In fact, Jesus goes so far in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, He says, guys, I'm not talking about this crazy giant faith. He goes, if you had faith the size of a tiny little mustard seed, you could say to that mountain, go fall into the sea and it'd do it. You underestimate how important faith is. It doesn't take much to unleash God's power, guys. But if it's not present, He will not 
show his power. Sometimes I wish he would, but Scripture's really clear. He won't do it. He won't do it. So here's the question for you personally. If you have low expectations of what God's going to do in your life, expect low experience. If you have high expectations and you have vision for what God could do with your life, expect God will begin unleashing His power in your life. Okay? Not because you did the to-do, oh, I went to church, I gave money, I did this. No, no, no. It's not what it says. Faith is what unlocks or unleashes God's power. And that only requires a drop. Okay, this is another phrase. I'm sorry if you don't have, I know there's something similar. Go to the next slide. In English, we have this phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. I'm sure there's a Creole version of that, and someone come tell me afterwards so I can start trying to learn how to pronounce it. (laughs) Familiarity breeds contempt. All that means is that sometimes we see something amazing. You know what that picture is? That's up where we live, up towards Kinskoff. Every day. I can take 50 of those pictures every day. But here's the principle. Sometimes we see something amazing so often, we don't even look at it anymore. It's like, eh, yeah. There are people here on this incredible island that live on the beach. And they look every day, and then they go, oh, yeah, I've already seen it. I've already seen it. Familiarity breeds contempt, and that's what happened to Jesus. He goes to his hometown. They they thought they were so familiar with him that they thought, oh, he can't be. Can you imagine if somebody in his hometown says, so, little Jesus, what'd you do this week? Do you know what his answer would have been? Well, I brought a little girl back from the dead. I healed a couple hundred sick people. Uh, I calmed the wind and the waves on the Sea of Galilee, and oh, by the way, did I tell you I'm the Messiah? (laughs) They would have gone, cuckoo, cuckoo. What? Who does this guy think he is? Familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, I I could have, my, my wife is so beautiful, but we've been married long enough, it's sometimes easy for me to go like, oh, I forgot. Oh, my. Sometimes we actually have to have other people pay attention to our wife before we go, oh yeah, whoa, I better get it together here. (laughs) The same is true for faith. Some of us have been around Christian stuff too much, and familiarity breeds contempt. And so we have a tame little nice Jesus. Not what the book of Revelation calls him, the lion of the tribe of Judah. (laughs) Not the one who says to the wind and the waves, shh, and they stop. We just have a nice little Jesus. We've just grown so familiar to him that we can no longer see the glory and the amazing thing that we get to see as we read through the Gospel of Mark. Because familiarity sometimes breeds contempt in us. And that's what's happening in this passage here. 
Okay, well, let me conclude. I said I was going to talk a little more about China. I don't know if you know this. Many Westerners don't know much about this. Uh, jump that slide up there. It's pretty amazing. Currently in China, we are experiencing the single greatest revival in the history of the church by far. Okay, here's some statistics. Very hard to get statistics in China because it's predominantly a closed country. So it's hard for researchers to even find this out. But here's what I do know. I keep up on this. Every time we find out, it's more than we think. We think we're exaggerating, and then we find out the reality, and we go, what? Okay, in 1949, when missionaries were kicked out of China, there were less than a million Christians. And many of the missionaries thought we failed. We just didn't get it done. Communism takes over. They reject what they call superstitious faith. And we thought that when we got back into China, if we ever were going to, we thought we'd find there's almost nothing left. Take a look at 1980. I had a professor in America who had been a missionary in China who'd been kicked out. And I remember him talking in class about, we didn't get it done. We don't know what happened. But the Chinese communist wall fell, and we just don't think we told enough people about Jesus. In 1980, I'm in class with him when they finally allow some Westerners in to see what happened. And do you know what the reports came back? Oh my gosh, that seed, it found fertile soil. It produced 30, 50, 100, 200 fold. It's unbelievable what it did. These are the statistics that we first got, that it had tripled, at least tripled, in the years the missionaries got kicked out, which makes me wonder sometimes, maybe Haiti would be better off if they kicked dumb North Americans like me out. Maybe we'd see more happen. I don't know. I hope that's not true. I hope we're helping, but uh, I'm sorry if we're not. By 2018, 2018, they thought they were getting more accurate statistics, and the statistics turned out to say they were up towards 130 million Christians in China. Look at this last one. Here are the current projections. By 2025, they think it'll be 160 million, and they're projected in 2030 to have 247 million Christians. They are currently reaching 10,000 new Christians a day in China. And let that sink in. 10,000 new believers on an average day. On an average day. This is the most persecuted church probably in the world. And they're still good soil. And so the seed is producing way beyond what anybody thought could possibly be produced. Now, I hope I'm not overstating here. I actually have studied this quite a bit. These are conservative statistics. It may be far greater than this. We don't totally know because so many Chinese Christians are in prison. We don't even know how to count them. They don't meet in churches like this. That would be illegal. They meet in underground churches in secret. And in those secret churches, they're doing 10,000 new Christians a day. So you can understand that. That means that if you and I were producing soil like China's soil, we would reach all of Port-au-Prince. Look at that. 
read it again, you can do the math yourself. In 220 days, we would reach 100% of everybody in Port-au-Prince. We would reach all of Haiti within three years. Can you imagine that? So what's the question? Well, Jesus in this section of Mark would put the question to us, are you laughing at that? And I got to kick you out of the room? Or do you believe? God will not unleash His power in the midst of unbelief. That doesn't mean there can be some people who struggle with doubt and unbelief. That's normal. But in general, God is waiting to see in Haiti if there will be people who read His Word and say, I believe you can do this. Say the word, Jesus. And even a country like Haiti that sometimes loses hope that anything can change will find out the power of God. So here's my question for us collectively this morning. Will Kiskea Chapel be a place of unbelief or a place of faith? Are we going to settle for a nice little Jesus? Is this just going to be a nice English-speaking church, a safe place for us English speakers to hide out in Haiti? Or will it be a launching pad? to start the revival, not due to us, due to the power of God being unleashed. God loves to unleash His power in situations where it seems hopeless. He loves it. He can't wait to do it. He's looking to find out, will He find a church that says, we believe this? God, we believe that You're going to use this church and many other churches and many other people to launch the kingdom of God, the kind of good soil that China is currently seeing. That's a challenge, isn't it? That's a tough challenge for us. I listened this week to one of those house church leaders from China, a man named Bob Fu. Uh, he's written a book called God's Double Agent because he was teaching uh, in a Communist Party school when Jesus got a hold of his life. And then very quickly, he became the pastor of an underground church. And some of the older pastors, he met with them, he said, I want to learn more about the Bible. I want to learn more about theology. Do you know what they said to him? Okay, course number one, do you know what it is? He said, no. Prison theology. You must go to prison first and learn to pray. He's like, what are you talking about? They go, don't worry, you don't have to do anything, you'll find out. Within a couple of months, he was arrested and imprisoned along with his wife, who was pregnant with their first child. And he tells the story of God's miraculous leading to get him out of that situation. But he's like, this is when the interviewer asked him, so what's different about the Chinese church and the Western church? He said, well, we go to prison first. <laughs> they go, what? He says, yeah, we go to prison first. It really forces me to decide, do I believe this or not? He says, what happens is so many of these underground church pastors come out with, guess what? Faith. Faith. <laughs> Maybe we need prison. Are you ready? <laughs> I don't know if I am. I feel so wimpy. Will Haiti be a nation of faith? 
or a nation of unbelief. Will Kiskea Chapel be a center of faith or a center of unbelief? Will you personally be somebody that says, well, I believe this stuff about Jesus, but I don't really have faith? God is morally compelled to not pour his power out until he sees us express faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Let's pray. We hope this message was helpful for you. If you're in Haiti, join us on Sunday mornings where English speakers from all backgrounds, missionaries, diplomats, Haitians, expats, come together to worship, to connect, and to have fellowship with one another. You can find more information about our location, our service times, and our Sunday school program for all ages at our website at kiskeachapel.org. Or shoot us an email at chapelq at gmail.com. That's chapelq at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.